Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Political Beats, where uh, we talk with people who are in politics, covering politics, around politics, uh, commenting on politics, not about anything political whatsoever, no issues, no bills, nothing. Just their favorite music and their favorite bands in the whole wide world, why they love them and why perhaps you should too. Thank you for coming back. This is a presentation of National Review. You can subscribe to our feed for new episodes Monday mornings, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. Click on podcast. You'll find all the offerings from National Review, including our little thing, Political Beats. All our old episodes are are stationed there as well, and the uh, lovingly handcrafted show notes for my co-host are there each and every week as well. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram, S-C-O-T-B-E-R-T-R-A-M. And my co-host standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff. Hey there, Scott. How are you? I am standing here in the mirror, gently primping, working on those jerry curls to get them looking as good as possible for my upcoming music video shoot. Fantastic. Uh, You can find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. And by the way, the show has a Twitter account, too. Uh, at political underscore beats. We could not uh, get the, without the underscore. There was, you know, a request for cash. We were not prepared to acquiesce to the demand. So we have the underscore. At political underscore beats is where to find the show on Twitter as well. So we bring in our guest each and every week, someone new to talk about their uh, favorite band, the one they love and, uh, and, and worship the catalog of. Uh, this week, we welcome in uh, a writer who has uh, been featured at uh, National Review, The Federalist, and a number of other places. Also, the author of No Certainty uh, Attached, Steve Kilby and the Church. Also, We Can Be Heroes, The Radical Individualism of David Bowie. And he was a producer and performer on a tribute album for the band we're about to talk about. And I'll tell you the name of the album. It's called The Dark Side of Hall & that tells you our band, which we'll get to in a second. But first, we welcome into you, welcome to you, Robert Dean Lurie. You can find him at robertdeanlurie.com. It's L-U-R-I-E. Robert, thank you for joining Political Beats. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, a huge honor to be on this. I uh, appreciate making some time and carving out a little bit for us here on the show. Now, uh, I don't know if you have a specific political beat, right? But you've been featured in a number of publications. Those books we mentioned, how do you fit into this uh, ecosystem here? Well, I'm definitely on the cultural side of the equation. Um, I'm pretty interested in political history and how various political philosophies play out in the arts and specifically in popular music and uh, to some degree in literature and movies. So th- there's not really a grand design to it, but <laughs> I just kind of write about what I'm interested in and find the proper outlet for it. And again, you can find a whole lot of the writing and uh, links to books and much more. RobertDeanLurie.com is where to find him. So our band today, which uh, we, we teased and gave away with the name of the album that you worked on, The Dark Side of Hall & Oates, today is in fact Daryl Hall and John Oates, guys from Philadelphia. They are songwriter hall, songwriting Hall of Famers. They are rock and roll Hall of Famers, if that does stuff for you. Six number one hits through their careers, 40 million albums sold, success in the 70s, and massive, massive success in the early 80s from about uh, 1980 to 1984. Unavoidable on the uh, on the top 40 stations on the Billboard charts. 
my understanding and appreciation of them was colored for a long time. I read a book uh, when I was young, and I think it was like it was like the 50 worst songs of all time or the 50 worst bands of all time. I, I don't recall, but I do recall that number one on that list was something by Hall and & Oates, and the author referred to them as the worst duo, musical or otherwise, in American history. And that phrase stuck in my mind, obviously. It's still there today. And so it colored my appreciation, my listening of Hall & Oates for a long time, um, until a re-examination took place and uh, realized, no, I, I think that might be slight hyperbole. I don't think that's close at all. They are not the worst duo, musical or otherwise, in American history. They are pretty darn good. And uh, we turn to our guest, Robert Dean Lurie. Give us your background. How did you become exposed to Daryl Hall and John Oates? Why are they important to you? Well, I'm glad that you brought up uh, that... You said it was a book that you read, or, or, yep. or perhaps an article. Yeah. Um, because you know we're doing important work today on this podcast. We're correcting this uh, terrible slander, I think that has been leveled at these guys over the years, and um, to some degree, I think that has uh, dissipated with with the with the younger generation because. Um, you know, maybe we can attribute this to streaming and to, you know, just kind of how much more porous uh, accessing music has become. But, uh, you know, things things were kind of locked down in, in different uh, camps, I guess, back uh, pr- probably when that was written. Mm-hmm. So my own background. So I grew up and first started really getting into music right in the middle of the 80s. So uh, I remember these songs coming out, and, and this kind of is the backdrop to my the beginnings of my love of music and my awareness of music. Um, you know, the, the kind of trilogy of early al- early 80s albums that Hollow Notes did. Um, I, I remember those in real time, and, and I remember all the really goofy videos on MTV. <laughs> and... Uh, Anyway, so so it's effortlessly great music, in my opinion, and, and uh, there was never a thought in my mind that, that this might not be good music. You know, it just, just seems so obviously tuneful and heartfelt. And uh, when I got into playing music, that was kind of more towards the late 80s. And uh, at that point, I was really becoming passionate about... Uh, I'm not sure if we want to call it post-punk or at the time it was called like college rock or modern rock. Um, but it was a lot of the music that was often shown on 120 minutes on MTV on Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. So these are bands like the cure, the church, you know, you mentioned earlier that I wrote a book about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that band. Um, REM, particularly early REM and stuff like that. Uh, so I was, Again, it didn't occur to me that there was any kind of division between a group like Hall & Oates and those other bands. And then at one point, I was I was openly mocked by a friend for having the Hall & Oates album H2O.
alongside like the cures pornography or something like that. And <clears throat> so I became ashamed of my love, but that really only lasted for, you know, at most two years because again, it's just, you, you can't run from greatness. I think particularly if you're a musician, it's just hard to deny uh, the talent that's going on with the composition in, in hollow notes. And uh, I think maybe, you know, hollow notes, I don't know if they've ever been cool. And I think maybe that's the problem. Uh, you know, the videos are very goofy, I think intentionally. So, and I think a lot of people are maybe, you know, seeing the packaging and just not even taking the time to listen. So anyway, uh, fast forward just a couple of years and I'm in Athens, Georgia at, at university of Georgia. Um, as you guys know, that's that town has always been a huge music scene, mm -hmm. and of course, it's also a record store mecca. And uh, vinyl never really went away in Athens, uh, and so here I am, kind of a very poor undergraduate, um, and I had two good friends, and we we were all kind of interested in the same music. Um, one of these friends bought a turntable at a Goodwill and, and we kind of, the three of us shared the turntable and at the record stores, uh, I think it was Wuxtry. It was a very famous record store in, in Athens. Uh, you could get the entire hollow notes catalog. Each record was about a dollar. So I remember one day we walked home with pretty much the entire vinyl discography of hollow notes for <laughs> about $15. And we shared the, the records between the three of us. And, uh, you know, I, I think my friend Matt was the keeper of the vinyl. And then we all made cassette copies of it. And uh, it was just great music to listen to while in college. Uh, I think that the, the the lyrics really spoke to my concerns. You know, a lot of the songs were about relationship drama and stuff like that. And, and uh, the music was just so beautiful. So anyway, and, and then from then on, I've just never been ashamed of my love of the band. So um, to kind of explain why people should should pay attention to Hollow Notes, why, why they should kind of dig a little bit deeper, I have this quote here from the author Jim Harrison. Uh, it's not about Hollow Notes, but <laughs> he says, uh, writers by experience are overtrained in cynicism, and cynicism along with irony is a device, a set of blinders to keep the world in its place. And the music of Hollow Notes just does not have those blinders on. You know, that's not to say there's not cynicism there, because actually a lot of Daryl Hall's lyrics are pretty dark. Um, and that's not to say they don't use irony, but but the way they use irony is this kind of a device where you might have very upbeat music and dark lyrics. But as far as the actual words, they're always just straight from the heart. Um, and and Daryl Hall has talked about this, that he just bypasses the brain. So in that sense, it is true soul music, even though it actually jumps through a surprising number of genres. Um, and again, I talked earlier about the craft of hollow notes. It is unsurpassed. I mean, as far as the hooks in these songs, the chord changes, uh, it's some of the finest pop music that was made in the 20th century. So I love them. They are one of the greatest bands of all time. I grew up with hollow notes the same way uh, living creatures grow up with oxygen around them. Uh, it's almost impossible to reasonably ask, well, when did you first become aware of them? Because as a child born in 1980, 
with a dad who loved to, you know, tape stuff off of the radio and tape stuff off of, you know, late night videos. And as a kid who, you know, was absorbing his music collection, which included a copy of Rock and Soul, which is their their compilation album from 1983, um, <clears throat> one of the earliest CDs, I think, ever released, in fact. Um, this stuff was always there. It was ubiquitous. And then, of course, the danger with a band uh, that is so ubiquitous is that you take them for granted. You start there and you think, well, this is just, you know, great pop success. You know, I, I listened to I must have listened to Out of Touch about 400 times. It was one of my dad's yeah. favorite songs. You know, I must have watched the video they taped of uh, Maneater about 100,000 even more times than that. <laughs> this stuff was just so there. It was so ever present. It was almost like a an architectural feature, or a, you know, a, no, a topographical feature of the landscape, <laughs> like a hill, or like a mountain. You take it for granted. Oh yeah, that's that's just the mountain. It's there. Um, so it actually took a lot of time for me to, to go back. Actually, when uh, my dad, you know, like twenty years later after I've gone to college, come back, he just bought like a new CD, a new very best of. Hollow Notes, and I just sat down around. And I was visiting at home, and I listened to it. I wanted something to drive around with in the car, and I thought to myself, well, "You know, mother of God, this is some great effing music." Mm. And I started going back, as I always do. I have this approach to music where if I get interested in a band, either something I want to do for the first time, or a band that I, or an artist that I'd previously known of but felt like I've neglected, I'll just start from the beginning. And so what I did is I started from the beginning. What I found out with Hollow Notes is that they are a very different group when they start their first three albums than they are when their hit making phase begins <clears throat> they have one very famous song from earlier in their career we're going to get to it i think it could even possibly be the best song they ever released as a matter of fact but what they started off as was a almost a, a kind of a slick folk rock pop duo with these soul tinges that clearly were, you know, mm -hmm. at the heart of what Daryl Hall and John Oates were really into was Philly soul guys, but a very different sound. And you got to hear their evolution and had all these really interesting, you know, dips and bums. And they went around the corner, they went back again. They was they were never entirely sure during the late seventies where they were going. And then when they finally emerged into megastardom in the early eighties with some really great albums that we'll get to, um, it was proper vindication for them and proof that they were probably as good as anybody in that era has ever been at writing truly catchy tunes, tunes that take on a life of their own in the singles chart. Um, but that underrates them because it actually, it actually makes you not realize how good all their albums were as well. Uh, the, the thing that cemented my appreciation for hollow notes is a game that I played with a, a, a buddy of mine at work. This is before I went to law school. I was, I was working for the government. We just so over a lunch break for whatever reason. We just started, you know, pinging off of each other. It's like, yo, name a Hall and Oates song. That's a hit. You know, hum one. And he started and he hummed one song. I was like, all right, okay. And then I did this. And then he came back at me. We were trying to see, you know, when we would run out. And <laughs> we went on for about 20 minutes. We had 20 minutes worth of famous Holodotes hits, singles, songs that we knew, things that we loved. It was amazing how much they have contributed to the charts, to the sort of musical texture of American life since 1972-73 that it's kind of criminal that they're sort of forgotten now 
Although I think they're not forgotten. I think, you know, as Robert pointed out, it's a younger generation has revived them. I sometimes chafe at the way they discuss, like, ooh, yeah, I love that yacht rock. That's so neat. That, that's, that's, I don't know. I find that to be annoying because it puts them into a, a silly box and it sort of it, it cabins them off with ironic quotation marks, which I don't think they deserve. This is music that is great on its own merits. This is music that is really interesting on its own merits. And it's music that when you dive into these albums and the songs that we're, we're talking about, you're going to find out there is a, a, truly an enormous amount of artistic and creative ambition that have gone into these records that is really successful, that has brought off well all throughout their career. I'd say up until the mid-80s, they really repay all of the time and effort you would put into them. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Political Beats, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Robert Dean Lurie with us this week talking about Daryl Hall and John Oates. And uh, we, we, we begin um, with three albums released on Atlantic before they moved to RCA and, and, and had a little more success. But these are three albums in 72, 73, 74, each of them pretty different from one to the next. Uh, one, I think Jeff will argue, a stone-cold classic. Um, but Whole Oats, their first one, 72. Um, Jeff had mentioned, you know, there's this singer-songwriter folk slash soul R&B vibe through it. It's, it's, it's certainly more singer-songwriter, but it's of the time. I mean, you can hear... Uh, some influences from things that were happening. Uh, Joni Mitchell, even a little Elton John, maybe, and the early Philly soul all seeping through some of the some of the tracks. Um, you know, it's a debut, uh, and it's it's not one of the you know all time greatest debuts, right? Uh, but I think there are a couple of tracks that really separate themselves from the rest. The leadoff track, "I'm Sorry," is very good. Uh, "Fall in Philadelphia," Daryl Hall plays some piano on that track, which is very good. I guess I have the faith. And good morning. Uh, and Lily, are you happy? Uh, four tracks from that first album that I think worked to highlight the strengths they had at the time and point a little forward to what would happen next. Um, it, it's a very solid debut, uh, but doesn't quite doesn't quite foreshadow what would come in the late seventies and certainly into the early eighties. Yeah, my thoughts on Whole Oats, um, it's one of the few places in the Hollow Notes catalog where they actually sound tentative. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of what they do, no matter how weird it gets, um, they're trying to, to sell you on it. You know, I mean, they, they're doing it, they're all in. And, um, you know, they, they had kind of gotten this, they had went, they had gone from complete obscurity and uh, just shopping demos around to signing this deal with Atlantic. And these were some songs that they kind of already had in the bag, and they recorded them. And it's very folksy. It's very delicate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, 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 I think Jeff, uh, he, he pointed out the whole yacht rock thing, and I, I absolutely hate that label um, because a, a lot of their stuff actually has an edge. But this album is pretty soft. Yes. Um, you know, having said that, there, there are a, a number of songs that I love. In fact, I think Scott nailed him uh with his list there so uh yeah I, I enjoy listening to it though it's it's not a bad album by any any means 
This album sounds like the grassroots, and I don't mean that as a good thing. Um, <laughs> you know, don't pour your love out on me, baby, which is actually not the grassroots. Nuts. I think that's Hamilton, um, Joe, and somebody Hamilton, else. Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds. There right. Go, Thank yeah. you. My God, how do we know these obscure <laughs> ones? But you know, you, you know what I'm talking about with that. It's like a sort of light, easy pop listening thing with these, you know, background strings that are, you know, somewhat tasteful, but they have no edge to them. Right, and that is that is the, the the problem with with Whole Oats, the first album. By the way, I think that was actually the name of the band originally. Yes. yes. Daryl Hall, his real name is Daryl Hall, H O H L. It's I think Dutch, I assume. Um, and of course, John Oates is John Oates. So Whole Oats, get it? Ha ha! Very funny. Um, yeah, I know, not the best <laughs> pun in the world, but they went with what they had. Yeah, it's a pretty iffy album. It's pretty diffident. A lot, a lot of that cliche '70s string production at top. One of the things you got to remember is that the record label they were signed to, in a lot of ways, sort of governed these early decisions. Coming out of Philadelphia, they have the Philly soul background. That's a real subculture in that city that obviously guided them, and of course Daryl Hall in particular. I mean, this is one of probably one of the two or three white guys who belong in the soul singing hall of fame mm -hmm. blue-eyed soul it's like him and like steve winwood probably have the most soulful <laughs> white boy voices i've ever heard in my life um but yeah most of the album doesn't work i think the one that jumps out to me uh, is one that none of you have mentioned yet it's called water wheel and it's oh, yes. um, it's it's very different than the rest of the album it's just the reason i like it the most effective i think on this album is when they pair back a lot of the production so water wheel is sort of a slow ballad i believe it's just uh, daryl hall at the piano with you know a few you know delicate tasteful production touches but it's it and i think he sings a lot of falsetto on that song too and daryl hall singing falsetto is something that is you know one of the most wonderful sounds in the world because the man has this amazing high range um but yeah the thing that most amazes me about their debut album is the gap that sits between it and its follow-up abandoned luncheonette which is the next one that they released in 1973 um Usually a band, especially given the fact that Whole Oats was a bunch of songs that they had had sort of done for years, mm -hmm. usually start with your best material. You know, that's the – and the sophomore slump happens because you're out of your best material. You used it up on the first record, and so you have the inevitable downturn. Uh, this is the exact opposite. It seems like they put all of their second-rate material or most of it on the first album, and then miraculously – you have Abandoned Luncheonette, which has some of the very similar production stylistics to Whole Oats in terms of that sort of Philly soul, folk, rock, kind of fusion hybrid sound, but is start to finish perfect. And I do not use that word as hyperbole. I mean there are literally no songs on this record, not a single one, that are bad. None of them. And some of them are incredibly adventurous. Some of them are beautiful. And one song on them is I will submit the greatest song that Hollow Notes ever recorded, one of the greatest songs of the entire 1970s. But before I get to ranting about it, I'm going to let you guys throw your two cents in too. So I, I, I think Abandoned Luncheonette is a, a big step forward. I don't have it um, quite as high as some of the things that would, that would be to come. Um, but, uh, well, She's Gone is on the album. Jeff's going to uh, praise that one in just a moment or two. But that's, uh, that's just a tremendous song. Uh, and John Oates with the the bassy, I'd pay the devil to replace her. There you go. That's perfect. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I'm just a kid is an Oates song. Uh, one of those really best, I think. Uh, you know, entering manhood, but but not really being ready for it. Uh, there's some horns on the album, the, the soul undercurrent that Jeff mentioned. Uh, Every time I look at you is this funky workout. I like Las Vegas turnaround quite a bit. 
which is a softer track, talking about Sarah the Stewardess, which was uh, in actuality, uh, I believe, Sarah Allen, who would then go on to a very long-term relationship with Daryl Hall, never married, but were together for, I think, 30 years, and wrote some of their, co-wrote some of their big, big hits to come. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a neat little tune about being a stewardess, <laughs> going back and forth to Vegas. Um, so I, I think it, the quality is very high, and I, I would pretty much, I, I'm not a huge fan of the title track, Abandoned Luncheonette, but outside no, of that. No, how wrong? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> outside of that, I think you know most tracks are very, very solid, some very high points. And uh, uh, Robert, what do you think? Well, I, I, I think I'm going to be kind of between you guys here. Um, so this was this was my early favorite. You know, when 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 we brought that stack of records home and started listening to them, this was the one. This was the Sunday morning Athens record. And uh, when the morning comes, you know, the the, the lead track. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm out in the cold and I'm getting old, standing here waiting on you, but it'll be all right when the morning comes. That was just the right thing to hear at that time. Um, I think side A is is note for note perfect. Um, I was curious to see what you guys think about that Oats song, uh, I'm Just a Kid, because I've always had a very kind of dark reading of that. Uh, and, and, and Jeff, I mean, have you ever kind of spent some time with those lyrics or, or what, what's your take on that? I almost feel like I've always interpreted it. I haven't. I have to go back and like parse the text more closely to really ratify my view of it. But mm-hmm. what it always made me feel like is like a young man in a relationship with an older woman, and who hmm. feels like they're uh, they're being taken advantage of. And like this is this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. It almost it almost feels like one of those weird predatory stories about like the high school teacher hmm. who uh, you know hooks up with her student in senior class biology or something like that, which is obviously not what it's about. But mm-hmm. that was the vibe that I always took from it. Now just around the corner, baby, maybe you could even try to talk. What's the angle that you have? Well, that's interesting because, I mean, I thought it was, uh, so I got the same kind of predatory reading, but I thought it was kind of a first person like he's the he's the predatory character, and obviously hmm. not John Oates, right? But but right. the narrator of the song, and um, and I almost put it in the same uh, category with a song by the Kinks called Art Lover. Have you ever heard that song? Oh mm-hmm. yeah, hey, we yeah. did an episode on the Kinks not too long ago. <laughs> yes, yeah. You have two so, hours I mean, in your I, life. It, it's kind of a genre listen. of two, right? Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. If, uh, don't stand person. so close to me, baby. It's the genre right, right. So, so yeah, I mean, in, in, in either case, I, I always thought it was, there, there's an edge to that song and it's, it's, you know, a little bit mm-hmm. hard to pin down, but it, it makes it very interesting. Um, I think one of the, one thing that you guys didn't mention about this album is, um, this is very much hollow notes as a duo. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty equal contributions mm-hmm. from both of them, uh, which will not be the case as they continue on. Um, and, and a very strong showing by John Oates. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, that sounded funny that, that Las Vegas turnaround uh, is a song about Daryl Hall's girlfriend, Sarah. Right. But mm-hmm. it's written by John Oates. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which, uh, you would have thought that'd be the quintessential song that Hall would have written, but no, not at all. All right. Yeah. yeah it's a great and, one. 
I think that Oates uh, met her first, and um, she, she was talking with a friend and, and kind of threw out this line about, I, I'm doing a Las Vegas turnaround, and, and, and Oates was the one that kind of caught that line. Um, and then subsequently, you know, when Daryl Hall was introduced to her, they began a 30-year relationship and collaboration. Um, but yeah, that is interesting, and, and uh, I, I hadn't realized that until we were preparing for the podcast that that's a sole John Oates composition. Yeah. All right, Jeff, you, go ahead. Take it. She's gone. Well, I mean, it's, no, no, not even just that. With that, though, I got to get to that third. Okay, again, I unlike you, I think "Abandoned Luncheonette" as a song is a fantastic song. Mm-hmm. I think the second side of this album is just as good as the first side, and is 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 if anything less appreciated. I am a sucker for these times when you get Daryl Hall sitting in front of a piano and singing and Laughing Boy, a song nobody talks about, nobody knows. You can find it on YouTube, or if you own the album, that's the only way you have ever heard it, is just magnificent. It's Hall with, it's like a a French horn or a flugelhorn in the background, and that's it, and a piano, and it's just a beautiful ballad. But then the last song on that album, the last song on that album is a song called Every Time I Look At You, and it is the moment where you suddenly understand why did Daryl Hall end up going on to work with Robert Fripp? Why did Daryl Hall always have secret prog rock tendencies, which are going to show up, by the way, on War Babies, their next album? Every Time I Look at You is a seven-minute song, and it's, it's just a psychedelic country folk soul prog masterpiece. They have literally, in the middle of the song, or actually at the end of the song, they have a breakdown for like fiddle, for banjo for guitar mellotron synthesizer they go through 17 different styles seemingly and all of them are incredibly musical it throws everything together into one beautiful concatenation of sound and it has that sort of sprawling you know lack of discipline that you would expect from a young artist or a young writer who hasn't like boiled his stuff down to you know a pop brevity but that to me is actually just really fun and compelling it reminds me of early bruce springsteen on albums like the wild the innocent and the e street shuffle or uh, you know, greetings from Asbury Park, which is actually my favorite era of Bruce Springsteen, because the the sort of lack of discipline means they're willing to try anything, throw anything at the wall, and see if it sticks. And you know, if you're talking about Bruce Springsteen, well, where did he put it together? He put it together on a single song that sort of was the perfect encapsulation of everything he was ever trying to go for. And that song, of course, is Born to Run. It was a year later than Abandoned Luncheonette. Well. Hollow Notes had that exact same analog, and of course the analog is with She's Gone. She's Gone is one of the greatest singles released in the 1970s. I will stand on it today and say this is probably still, despite so many magnificent songs that would come later, Hollow Notes' greatest song. It is a truly complete piece of music. The melody, the orchestration, the arrangement, and the lyric the lyric on that song is just brilliant. It opens with one of my favorite lines of the early 70s, which is, everybody's high on consolation, which is such a kind of like an early 70s hippie. With, it, it, it's a hippie sentiment with an edge. He's, he's, he's mocking the fact that you know everybody here is telling themselves, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's all right. But you guys are all basically <laughs> living in a drugged up fantasy land. You know, everybody's trying to tell me what's right for me. My daddy tried to bore me with its, his sermon. Um, and then it goes into this just magnificently, you know, devastating chorus. She's gone, you know, and I'd give the devil to replace her. And the strings and the horns in the background have this elegiac feel to them. And then you have the guitar solo 
a sax solo, mm. and then he comes back into the end with <laughs> She's Gone, and my God, it's one of the most rousing and moving moments in pop. I just don't understand why people haven't erected shrines to this. It's one of the masterpieces of pop music, and I think this is the peak of their early career. I think I have this theory. I think if you're a Hall Oates fan, you like you fit into one of the three camps from their big seventies tune. She's gone, Sarah Smile, or Rich Girl. The way you talk about She's Gone is the way I'll talk about Rich Girl a little bit later on. I, you know, they make all these lists of the hundred greatest songs of all time and this and that, and nothing from Hall & Oates ever shows up on those lists. You can make a great case for She's Gone being somewhere on there. I would make the case that perhaps it's Rich Girl that should be on that list, and maybe even Sarah Smiles, some people. But I think all three of those tunes are really just perfect in their own way. Yeah, I mean, they. Uh, yeah, it is hard for me to choose between those three. Um, but I, I agree. She's gone. Is, was was again one of my early favorites, um, and it is a pure fifty-fifty collaboration between the two of them in the writing and the performance. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about abandoned luncheonette is, um, in preparing for the podcast, I was re-listening to everything, and I was kind of just walking around and listening to it streaming, and it sounded great, but. Abandoned Luncheon in particular, it was it was recorded and it was mixed for vinyl. And if you have a good sound system and you have the record, the entire record sounds so amazing. <laughs> and those acoustic guitars are so warm. She's Gone in particular just jumps out of the speakers. Yeah, I think a little bit it gets lost uh, when you hear it digitally. Um, the, the later stuff sounds great digital, but uh, this stuff was really, really made for vinyl. Uh after Abandoned Luncheonette, uh, one year later, they were cranking out these albums in the 70s, man. Uh, War Babies comes out. Todd Rundgren produces. His band Utopia performs on it. This is an extension, as Jeff mentioned, of, of some of the stuff uh, from Every every Time I Look at You from Abandoned Luncheonette. Um, you know, we, we talked a bit beforehand, and I know, I know Robert has a lot of thoughts on, on War Babies. I just want to mention one track that I found interesting more than the others, which is uh, a tune called Better Watch Your Back. Um, mm -hmm. Start-stop rhythm to it. There's this uh, slide guitar that meanders its way through it. I, I, did, I, I don't love a ton of what's on War Babies, uh, but Better Watch Your Back is a really interesting tune that uh, I kind of salvaged from that album. But I know Robert loves it, uh, and, and Jeff, I think, is going to make a case for it, too. Yeah, I will. I mean, I, it, it's the album that more than anyone, I think there are two Hall & Oates albums that sort of completely fall into the background. One of them is Beauty on a Backstreet, which I will strongly and strenuously defend later on. And then the other one is this one, War Babies. It's totally forgotten. It's it's almost treated as if it was like this thing that didn't happen. It's it's Daryl Hall, John Oates collaborating with Todd Rundgren, who at that point, Todd Rundgren, again, as a man who wore many masks, but at this point in his career, he had formed a prog rock band, which he kind of formed as a joke, basically a joke about prog. Todd Rundgren is always does everything with arch ironic quotation marks around <laughs> him. Um, the name of that band was Utopia. Uh, you know, absolutely crack players. Um, but the sound, it, it's funny because it actually doesn't stray too terribly far in a lot of ways from what you heard on Abandoned Luncheonette. And 
this is one of those albums that I sometimes find myself embarrassed to say I like the songs off of. You can say, oh, she's gone. People are like, yeah, that's a good song. I remember that. When you try to sell somebody on a song called War Baby Son of Zorro, <laughs> it's a heavier lift, guys. It's a heavier lift. But the truth remains that that is a magnificent song. It is the best song on the album, quite possibly. And uh, – the only thing I can think of to explain some of the ridiculous, more proggy names on this thing is that it really is actually a, a case where I think Hollow Notes are, are looking at something like the Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle. They're looking at, you know, Incident on 57th Street. They're looking at New York City Serenade, Rosalita, you know, Big Balls Billy, and all the stuff that comes out of Bruce Springsteen's fantasy world. And they're trying to appropriate some of those images for their own music. And it's a bit of an awkward marriage but the music on this record is really good you're much too soon with that uh, let me go let me go let me go now baby coda that's really good stuff 70s scenario probably the least run grinish song on the album until that weird bonkers guitar solo also a great tune there's a lot of good music on this record even though it had never chucked up a hit and it seems to have been almost completely forgotten by everybody including the band yeah so an interesting thing about my own experience with War Babies is, um, you know, that that collection that we brought home that I keep referring to, for some reason, this was not in there. This was not part of the batch. And so for a lot of years, I just kind of ignored it because I didn't have it. And also its reputation was kind of odd. You know, it, it seemed like a, kind of I mean, the impression I got was that it was kind of forced. It was not it was not sort of an authentic album. Um, and it actually wasn't till prepping for this that I really sat down and, and listened to it and uh, I, I really enjoyed it um, and and I thought that uh, there actually is a through line um, it's uh, it's and I think um, what you said Jeff about every time uh, what is it every time I look at you um, the one on uh, yes the, the closing track yet yeah, every time I look at you from a band and luncheonette um, I think that's that's a good setup, right? Because because that is the kind of beginning of the sort of prog impulses um, that do show up in in uh, kind of this this run that's beginning here with War Babies. Um, so because I've I've really just acquainted myself with this album in the last week, uh, the song titles are still kind of blending together for me. But the one that is um, that jumped out immediately was 70s scenario. Um, I thought that was great. The production on the album is is great. It's very tight, um, and I think one of the other things with with War Babies is people assume that this was sort of um, kind of Todd Rundgren exerting his influence on Hollow Notes, and um, I think that's false. And I think uh, the more that you acquaint yourself with the Hollow Notes catalog, uh, you come to realize that actually they're they're in the driver's seat for all of their career. Uh, and so Rundgren did not take them anywhere that they did not want to go. They wanted to make this kind of really wacky experimental album. 
Uh, the other thing I want to say about War Babies, um, you know, I did I did hear it. It's not that I didn't ever hear it. I mean, I did hear it at one point way back when. Um, and I think it was maybe one listen up until now. Um, and it just didn't do anything for me back then. But um, it's very interesting to hear it now because because that previous listen was well before Back Ever came on the scene, well before some of this kind of sort of uh, freak hybrid things that that kind of sort of junk shop mm-hmm. uh, mixing up sounds that that began to happen in the 90s um, and and hearing it after all that it, it, it sounds uh, very forward looking um, it, it, to me like the the sort of mashup of different sounds makes a lot of sense now that we have all that other stuff in the rearview mirror and uh, and so it impresses me all the more that they were kind of doing a lot of that stuff so early before anyone was paying attention. I completely agree. And, and, and the thing about War Babies, really the thing about those first three albums they did for Atlantic, did, and after this point they moved to RCA Records for a really long time, is how it's a window into a road not taken. You could easily see them have gone down a completely different you know, alley with this record into a whole series of other ones. Um, it obviously wouldn't have ended the same way. I'm guaranteeing you it would not have ended <laughs> in the level of commercial success that they had. But they seemed equally as comfortable doing this sort of weird, crazy, as you say, junk shop fusionist stuff uh, as they ended up being uh, doing the slick, sweet soul stuff, which, of course, brings us to the next record, which is sort of the birth of their commercial career, their career as commercial hit makers. It's the self-titled albums. Daryl Hall and John Oates, it's the silver album, the one where they... As, the one with the pretty girls uh, on the cover. The one with those two, yeah, those two pretty ladies, <laughs> the one with the mustache yeah. on the cover. <laughs> what was the line? Daryl Hall has a great line. Is like, I, I looked like the girl I'd always wanted to date. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is you know a pretty good line. It's obviously airbrushed. It's kind of got that that sort of you know transgressive gender bending Ziggy Stardust thing. The music doesn't really, you know, it, it's not them in any way. And in fact, its most famous song is a song I'm not fond of. I've never much liked Sarah Smile. I've just, it's, it's a You're, you're a she's gone guy. See, we find out. What'd you say? I said, you're a she's gone guy. You want one of the three. Yeah, well, but <laughs> I like Rich Girl plenty, though. I mean, it, I just don't like Sarah Smile. I think it's, it's, it's probably one of their least engaging big hit singles. I'm obviously, you know, out on an island on that compared to the rest of the world because it is one of their most famous songs. Uh, the one on this one, which I think is, an, is a good album, but it's not a great album. Uh, that really, really, really sings to me is this random one called Gino, the manager, which is about their new manager. It was a, ended up being a very famous guy named Tommy Mottola. I think later on went on to discover Mariah Carey yep. and become Mariah Carey's husband. Um, uh, but Mottola was hauling out its new manager, and you suspect that he played a role in diverting them back into this more commercial soul material. I'm sure he had a sit down with him and said, listen, buddy, this is where the money's at. This is where if you want your career <laughs> to end up being anything worth value, you're going to go back and you're going to make some hits. And they, they produced for him. Uh, but the song that they wrote about him is called Gino. It's amazing, and it has this... Really, really adventurous, weird chorus is Gino. No, 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 no. Um, I'm just telling you right now, Scott, I want us to have an excerpt of this on the show <laughs> because it's one of my favorite moments in the entire Holodot's discography.
is, is, is a really good song. It's a sophisticated arrangement. If you took that song and, and changed a couple of things and slapped an indie rock label on it coming out today, it would fit right in. That arrangement is so like slinky and, and weird. Um, and there's a clavinet on it, too. Um, it's, it's a great song. I like this album um, probably more than I actually even like Abandoned Luncheonette. I really think that they kind of, I don't want to say retrenching, right? But after what they did on War Babies, you kind of come back and say, oh, well, this is a little bit more perhaps what we want to do right now. Uh, uh, Camelia, the, the first song of the album is so good. Oozing soul, a very Motown Philly soul sound. It's John Oates' uh, vocal on that one. Uh you mentioned Gino, the manager. We talked about that. There's another one, uh, Alone Too Long, really good track. And I, Sarah Smile's not going to crack my five list at the end of the uh, episode, but I do like Sarah Smile. Daryl Hull has some fantastic vocals on Sarah Smile. It's about Sarah Allen again, who was from Las Vegas Turnaround and would co-write their songs in the future. Um, it, it's, it's a good track. Uh, Sarah Smile is a very good track. Their first top ten hit, in fact. There's a lot to like about this Daryl Hall and John Oates, the silver album, as they call it, uh, better than the, uh, you know, the women's makeup album, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, Camelia is, is I think, perhaps even better than Sarah Smile, maybe the best song on the album. It's it's a good album. Um, for some reason, I've, I've just never fallen in love with this album. Um, it's very strong. Um, you know, their hooks are well in place throughout the album. Um, you know, it's it's uh, pretty clear why it did so well. Now, I'm going to disagree with uh, Jeff a bit on on Sarah Smile, um, and I'm going to disagree with you guys about Gino as well. So let's start with Sarah Smile. <laughs> so uh, Sarah Smile, I I think is wonderful. It's one of my favorites, but it wasn't always. It's something that mm, just I guess in recent years I've come to appreciate more I just think it's it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying with that Jim Harrison quote I mean this is just mm-hmm. pure from the heart songwriting and the performance as well and and uh, I actually saw Hall and Oates uh, perform last year and the performance was kind of erratic it was sort of all over the place uh, some of their big hits they didn't sound fully invested in probably because they've had to play them night after night a million times but uh, when Daryl Hall played Sarah Smile, he did a different arrangement. He played it on guitar, and it was a very kind of spare arrangement, and it was fantastic. And uh, I think that uh, the, the version on the album may not be the definitive version. There's probably live versions floating around that, that probably capture it best. Um, Gino, I won't disagree with you guys in terms of the catchiness of the song. I think it's uh, it's very catchy. I agree with the whole thing about, you know, if an indie rock band put it out, it would be big. And that's true, by the way, of a lot of their 70s work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, um, yeah, take the Hollow Notes name off and just play it for someone and, and uh, they'll love it. Um, I, I think I have a allergic reaction to songs that are sort of, 
about music industry insiders. You know, like <laughs> there, there, there's a whole genre of songs that are about how evil the music industry is. Um, and then there's there's just a, a peculiar small handful of songs that are kind of love letters to managers and people like that. So there's Gino. And then the other one I can think of is um, is a song by George Harrison called Mo. And it's about Mo Austin from Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, both of the songs actually are quite catchy, very listenable, but it just seems too, too inside track for me. Um, it's, it's not really relatable for most people. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good album. Uh, it's, to me, it's not a great album, but it's very, very solid. This is uh, Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Subscribe to our feed. New episodes Mondays, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, we hope. Leave a review if you would as well. Uh, I'm Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, the co-host, and Robert Dean Lurie with us this week talking about Daryl Hall and John Oates. You can find out more about his writing, his books, at robertdeanlurie.com. The follow-up to Daryl Hall and John Oates, 1976, bigger than both of us, and uh, this is the one with Rich Girl, and, and uh, you know the way that uh, the way that Jeff really uh, enjoys she's gone. I think enjoys an understatement. Uh, I, I I dig Rich Girl a whole lot. I'll tell you a quick story, which is uh, uh, back in my radio producing days uh, was uh, we were writing parody songs on the on the sports talk station. So everyone would write, and someone would sing, and. We'd, we'd, we'd get them all together. And so I, I wrote a bunch. I only sang two parody songs. I don't have a great voice. And one of the two parody songs that I wrote and sang, one of them was to Rich Girl. And it actually ties in because it involves a player in the World Series this week. The pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Rich Hill, who back then was a rookie. You were Rich Hill? Yeah. Back then was a rookie <laughs> pitcher for the Chicago Cubs, and he was having a fantastic debut. And so I wrote the, the parody song, and I, I remember the hook, which was, um, he's Rich Hill, and he's good so far. It's a shutout every fifth day. And there was, there was more. But, so I wrote and sang that for the old uh, Mac Yurko and Harry show in Chicago. Uh, I think fan- out of deference to you, we're going to have to edit this part <laughs> out of the show. <laughs> uh, fan favorite. Fan favorite. No. Uh, but Rich, Rich Girl is so good. First number one song uh, for the band. Uh, you know, the strings on at the Philly Soul. It's the shortest non-instrumental song in their catalog, I think. It's like two minutes and 22 seconds or something along those lines. But it's a brilliant mm-hmm. track. The vocals are A+. Plus. Uh, Rich Girl is it, it deserves uh, the number one status, and again, I think any any real list. I mean, there's arguments about any kind of list, but any real list of best songs of all time, Rich Rich Girl, not Rich Hill, Rich Girl, deserves a place on it uh, on it somewhere. I like the Oats track, uh, Crazy Eyes, and looking at you through Crazy Eyes tonight. Um, there's a, a track right near the end called Room to Breathe. Kind of sounds like exactly what the Eagles are doing around that time, if that makes sense in a correlation. There's a slide guitar on it, pretty rockin' tune from, from Hall & Oates that I, that I like quite a bit. Uh, Bigger Than Both of Us, I think, is, a for me, a, a slight step down quality-wise from Daryl Hall & John Oates, but it's in that same vein. 
and they certainly enjoy their first real huge taste of success with uh, with Rich Girl breaking big. Yeah, I don't have too much to add to that. I I agree with uh, most everything you said, Scott. Um, and and I I guess one other thing, I I kind of enjoy this album just a little bit more than than the Silver album. Um, I am a big fan of Crazy Eyes. I think that's a great song. And uh, I know, Jeff, you and I are both fans of the song Falling. Yes. Um, I don't want to steal your thunder too much with that, Just, but but Go just to it. kind of – well, just to say, again, this is a, a fantastic uh, sort of epic experimental track um, that, that kind of creates a, a heretofore unknown genre, which is prog soul, basically. Um, and uh, you, you really um, – a lot of Daryl Hall's uh, work with Fripp and, and some of the other stuff that comes with uh, next couple albums. Um, again, it, 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 it seems a lot more organic when you when you kind of catch this one, which is the final track on the album. I think for people who who know Hall and Oates as like the band that has Rich Girl as the number one hit single on this album to go pick it up and then realize that it ends with a piece that especially in its back half the final play out which is a long it's a long song mm-hmm. um, sounds like Genesis circa Trick of the Tail <laughs> this is literally this might as well be like if you've ever heard a song called Los Endos. Yes. The, the last song on a Trick of the Tail. This is that introductory section. It plays off like that. And that sounds like, again, maybe, you know, I, I hope you go and hear it. But the thing about it that's so strange is that it, it renders what happens next after Bigger Than the Both of Us uh, much more sensible and understandable than it might otherwise be. Because what happens after this album is that Daryl Hall, who had previously met Robert Fripp when he was touring King Crimson in uh, its uh, sort of third major iteration, the Jamie Muir, um, uh, John Wetton, Bill Bruford, David Cross version of the band in 74. Uh, they met, they struck it up, turns out they listened to and liked each other's music, and they said, hey, you know what, we're going to collaborate. Well, Fripp had since broken up the band, he was in New York, he was thinking of doing this, what he called his M.O.R. trilogy, where you know one of the people that he would produce would be Peter Gabriel. Uh, he ended up doing Peter Gabriel's second album. He would do a solo album himself. But the first one that he wanted to do was a collaboration with Daryl Hall. And that is in that, indeed what ended up happening in the beginning of 1977. The name of that album is Sacred Songs. And I would contend that Sacred Songs, although it didn't see release until three years later because Tommy Mottola <laughs> said, you know, this is uncommercial, you can't release this. This is totally going to mess up you know, your public reputation, Daryl Hall. You know, you're not going to become known as the Philly soul guy. You're going to be this weird prog rock <laughs> oddball. Um, it, it was suppressed. If you go and listen to it now, you will be stunned at, first of all, what a marvelous record it truly is. But also, 
just how ambitious and you know a little bent Daryl Hall truly was. There's a lot of esoteric stuff, some very Aleister Crowley things going on on this record. Daryl mm-hmm. Hall was a weird dude underneath the surface, despite these smooth pop you know symphonies that he would come up with with Hall and Oates. He had some interesting obsessions that only end up surfacing on an album like Sacred Songs. I can't recommend it strongly enough. I, and I know Robert, I know you're a fan of it as well. Yeah, and and it's um, we've been talking in the emails a little bit uh, back and forth about uh, there's a whole other side to Daryl Hall that's completely walled off to the public, you know, because his art is primarily um, very uh, intuitive, you know, because there's there's it's a lot more heart than head. We don't know too much about what's in his head, and um, my understanding. Um, I, I've been told actually that he is a, a huge, very committed bibliophile. He has a massive library and uh, is very um, voracious reader. And uh, all we know about his um, you know, tastes in reading really are just a couple snippets that he got very into um, esoteric spirituality in the 70s. And this is actually a uh, uh, kind of a, a common interest of both him and, and Robert Fripp. Um, and uh, he was into the Kabbalah, uh, Jewish mysticism. And actually, a- another little-known fact is that Daryl Hall converted to Judaism uh, when he married his first wife. And um, you know, since the the end of that marriage, he's not been regularly involved in the Jewish community. But he always said that he felt uh, uh, more of a connection, actually, to Judaism than than uh, Christianity, uh, which is what he was raised with. Um, and so, you know, he got into Kabbalah. Uh, he became an aficionado of Aleister Crowley, and he actually told an interviewer at one point that Aleister Crowley was a 19th century version of him. Which is, <laughs> uh, and, and he never said anything like that ever again. But um, uh, so and then the wall kind of went back up, you know, after Sacred Sounds, uh, Sacred Songs. And so we don't really know much more, but. Uh, so I think that is absolutely fascinating, and I, and you see just a little bit of that. I mean, you, you see it a lot on Sacred Songs, and you also see it on the Hollow Notes album uh, Beauty on a Back Street, which is uh, right around this time as well. I haven't heard. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get to Beauty on a Back Street in a moment, but I was I was uh, I haven't heard a lot of Sacred Songs. I did read an interview with Daryl Hall when he talked about this and the fact that the you know his vocals had to be stripped off all these songs, and he was saying that uh, he and Fripp did you know their friendship pretty much disintegrated because um he he would you know he, he couldn't be on these songs and and the way hall said tells it you know fripp was kind of um thinking he might steal daryl hall away from john oates you know break up that partnership and start a new one and when that didn't happen um they, they didn't get along very well after that apparently can you imagine if the 80s it was hall and fripp <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine like what Robert Fripp's contribution on guitar to "Kiss on My List" would have been. I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not seeing it. I really am not. But Fripp does end up guesting on um, uh, the, uh, a couple of the albums that mm-hmm. come up uh, along the Red Ledge, which I, I know that Scott wants to talk about. Before we get to that, yes. we have to get to the most unloved song in the unloved album in the entire Hollow Notes discography, and I, for the life of me, cannot understand why. It's called "Beauty on a Backstreet." It's an album from 1977. It is as obscure as they get. It, the Hollow Notes will even to this day still occasionally pull out the occasional song or two from War Babies, play that. 
They hate this record. Mm -hmm. They put out a four CD boxed set a couple years ago. They still did not include a single song from this record. You have never heard a single song from this album on any greatest hits record because it didn't have a lot of commercial success. For the life of me, I do not understand why. This is probably the, the most directly rockest album Hall & Oates ever made. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a really magnificent album. And in particular, there are uh, several songs right around the middle of it that I think um, just deserve so much more recognition than they get. Uh, you Must Be Good for Something is a Hall & Oates song that uh, it is, it's got a very kind of uh, semi-abrasive chorus that somehow still manages to be catchy and commercial. And then you have this Oats song called The Emptiness, which mm -hmm. they did end up playing live for at least a brief period of time. That I think is just a magnificent ballad. And then finally, um, you've got Bad Habits and Infections, which, you know, as a lyrical concern, you know, uh, Hall probably thinks it's a little too mean-spirited. He, he clearly is likening a, a person, presumably a woman, to um, uh, an infectious social disease. Uh, if you get my drift. Um, but it is such a creative song. The way the choruses and the pre-choruses and the middle section are constructed on this song, this is truly, again, progressive pop music. It's it's not straight pop. It's not man here. It's not a simple verse, chorus, verse. This is highly complicated, very well assembled pop rock music. Um, and then on, there are other songs on it like Wing and Bull that really do seem to have that esoteric spiritual concern that, that it, Robert was talking about. It feels like a throwback to sacred songs. Um, the Girl Who Used to Be is the last song on the album. That's, that's Oats. Again, these are beautiful songs on an incredibly underrated album. In particular, I really wish that people would go listen to Bad Habits and Infections, which, again, the title is going to throw you off the trail because it really does not sound like it would be an appealing piece of music. But I think it's, it's, it's one of their most underrated masterpieces. And I think this album as a whole is by far the most underrated album in the entire Hall & Oates discography. I couldn't agree with you more, Jeff. Um, in an alternate universe, this is regarded as as one of their absolute top albums. I mean, it's uh, there's nothing on it I don't love, and um, you know, Winged Bull is fantastic. It's a little derivative of Led Zeppelin, but that's not a bad thing. You know, <laughs> hearing Daryl Hall sing in that genre is not a bad thing. But the fact and, that you just said that sentence tells you what kind of an interesting album this is. Yes. A Hall and Oates song. That sounds a lot like Led Zeppelin. People, this is a really interesting <laughs> record. And Bad Habits and Infections is is absolutely amazing. That is a killer rock track right there. With this weird kind of break in the middle where it almost goes into like ELO territory. I mean, that's... As I said, it's, it's prog yeah. rock to me. And I don't yeah. understand why it's so unremarked upon. I mean, I guess I get it because they, they so... You know, entirely disowned this record. Do you have any idea, by the way? Because you know, I don't know a lot of the backstories on some of these things. Why yeah. do they hate it so much? You have any any earthly clue? What I've heard is that it was actually a really bad experience making the record, and there was a conflict 
I don't know if it was with the producer or, or who with, but um, the, the parallel I would draw is um, to the REM album, uh, Fables of the Reconstruction. You, you probably know a little bit of the story there that uh, I would say that's a fantastic album, but the band hates it for the same reason, that they were miserable mm-hmm. when they were making it. And, uh, and, and from what little I know about this record, they were miserable when they were making it. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, the performances seem completely all in, you know, I mean, and, and, and maybe they channeled that misery into the, into the performance, but, uh, it is fantastic. Yeah. You talk about like, you know, the way whole oat sounded tentative, nothing on this record sounds tentative. This right. is not them like dipping a toe in the water of rock and prog music. No, they, they clearly seem to understand exactly what it is they're going for. And they grab it by the horns again, uh, just folks, You've never heard of this album, so you may be a little bit wary when I recommend it to you this strongly. It's a great record. My only contribution on this is uh, um, to point out, you know, Hall & Oates trivia. Much like Houses of the Holy from Led Zeppelin is not on the Houses of the Holy album, Bigger Than Both of Us from Hall & Oates <laughs> is not on the Bigger Than Both of Us album. It's on Beauty on a Backstreet, Impress Your Friends with that piece of it's... Hall & Oates trivia. And ironically, I consider it one of the weaker songs on this record. <laughs> I think that it's funny. There are two songs on, on Beauty on a Backstreet that are much more soul-based and have that sort of bigger than the both of us, Daryl Hall, John Oates vibe. And it's that one, and it's uh, Love Hurts, Love Heals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think both of them, probably because they sound so much like stuff they'd already done once already, are you know less impressive than the rest of this. But, of course, this takes us to the... 1978 release along the red ledge which i know a lot of people consider to be you know unlike me they would consider this one to be the most underrated hollow notes album and scott i believe that you in particular consider this to be a great one yes that's me along the red ledge i think is 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 very underrated this uh, they brought in david foster to pr- produce who would go on to huge huge success in the 80s specifically with chicago and and peter Cetera. and it's it's a it's an album of halves Right, uh, side one. Back when they, you know, put them on LPs on actual vinyl. Side one is very good. Uh, it's a laugh. Um, is is was a single from it. It's got this uh, Ronettes kind of. Uh, I'm sorry. It's got the sax solo and a, and a call and response backing vocals. It's kind of a you know a, a blank you to a to a lover kind of song from from Hall. Uh, the funny thing is, everyone thought we were forever. Uh, is uh, is one of those lines. It's 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 a really good track. I don't want to lose you. Is a is a single that they did put out. It didn't do anything, and, and I was reading an interview with Daryl Hall where he said, I, "I have no idea why this did not do better. I don't either. It's got a wonderful groove to it. It's of the time, right? It's 1978, but it's got these strings, a very soulful kind of song about a, about love and jeopardy. It's a really good track. And uh, the last time on side one, George Harrison plays on the last time. It's got this uh, uh, kind of Ronettes kind of backbeat to it, uh, kind of pushing it forward. And then you flip over to side two, which is just a rockin' side of an album. Uh, Todd Rundgren, uh, Robert Fripp, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick all play on side two of this album. Uh, a great track, Alley Cats. Uh, Rick Nielsen plays on it. I swear to you, if I played this for you and did not tell you who it was, you would tell me without a doubt, 100%, it's Cheap Trick. <coughs>
and certainly <laughs> it's a cheap trick. It's song. unbelievable, no, and certainly because you know Hall and, and Rick and uh, Robin Zander both you know rule the upper uh, range of their of their voices. Uh, but Alley Cat sounds exactly like Cheap Trick, and I mean that in the best way possible. It's a great track. Uh, don't blame it on love. Robert Fripp plays uh, on that track. Another rocker. Uh, there's a there's a kind of like a '60s pastiche parody called Pleasure Beach, which is fun to listen to. And then Jeff, you had mentioned earlier how much you like just Daryl Hall and a piano, right? The last I, mean, track, I, know where, I know where you're going, right? Yeah, the last track on this is called August Day, mm-hmm. and it's a prime Daryl Hall vocal workout with just him and this piano. It's a beautiful song to close what is, you know, the rocking half of this album. But along the Red Ledge, uh, I don't know how many people have, have heard the whole thing or, or have even given the time of day to, to like side two of Along the Red Ledge, but I think it's really underrated. I don't know if it's going to make my my two albums you have to own at the end, but if not, it's just a notch below that. It's a great record from Hall & Oates. I would say that I, I I don't think it's as good as you do, so it's it's kind of like the abandoned luncheonette thing for you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's some of the songs here do not really do too much for me. The last time it's got it's nice that it has that George Harrison uh, guitar contribution on it, but I don't really think it's that interesting of a song. Uh, the one that I love the most is is its big hit single. It's a laugh. You know, you have the late 70s, you know, after Rich Girl, where they didn't have a lot of chart success. They have a couple of singles that go into the lower reaches of the charts. You'll have one from the next album that I don't much care for. Uh, but It's a Laugh is the one that I love. I love the, you know, the It's a Laugh, It's a Laugh in the chorus. <laughs> and these beautifully, I can actually sing that better if I'm trying. Just want you to know. Um, I'm in my office right now. I can't really go all out. <laughs> uh, I, I love the call and response chorus. I love the way the verse kind of builds and then it goes back down and it has these very Boston sounding guitars. The band Boston. It does actually sound like that Tom Schultz more than a feeling vibe on it. Mm-hmm. Um, really, I think it's Dick Wagner who plays them, which is telling because Dick Wagner always had that same kind of a guitar sound. Um, the rest of this album, I think, is okay. It doesn't jump out at me. The other one that I like, of course, is Don't Blame It on Love because I, there's obviously I was born with the switch setting on my head <laughs> uh, for Robert Fripp's Frippertronic style guitar set to on permanently. <laughs> I always love that sound. So when I hear that tweet, it comes right into the beginning of Don't Blame It on Love. I'm like, all right, sold, good. And then he contributes a really blazing guitar solo in the middle of it as well. So those two are the ones that I rate the highest from this. Yeah, to me, this one gets a little bit lost in the shuffle, especially because I loved uh, Beauty on the Backstreet so much. Um, and and this one, actually, the um, uh, Scott was talking about the the – second half and um pleasure beach is probably one of my least favorite uh outings in the in the hollow notes discography and and uh and then the that final track um 
was it is it August day or autumn day? I'm trying to remember here. Um, August day. August day. Yeah, I mean that is. I agree with everything Jeff said about that because that is an absolutely beautiful song. It's Political Beats uh, here from National Review, nationalreview.com to find us and old episodes. Also subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in. Uh, we have new episodes on Mondays. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. And Robert Dean Lurie is our guest today, robertdeanlurie.com. For more information about his writings, I should mention the show has a uh, Twitter account too, at political underscore beats. So Daryl Hall, John Oates, close out the 70s with a, uh, an album called Ecstatic. David Foster's back to produce. This one's pretty hit and miss for me, guys. I, I, yeah. I don't know how you guys yeah. feel about it? Um, there's, a, uh, there's a song called "Portable Radio," which sounds awful for the first minute or so. It's very disco. <laughs> it, it, it does, and then after it's, that, it's clear what the cover was based off of, too. I'm yeah. thinking, right? <laughs> which, is, which is a radio that's in a sack, uh, plastic bag that's like you know soaked in water. Yep. I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, after that first minute, there's some interesting stuff in that song. There's a good bass line. There's a good rhythm. It never quite takes off. Um, there's a song called Intravino, which uh, is Daryl Hall listing his favorite wines. But the <laughs> the, the back of it, um, there's power chords and some new wave keys. It's it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, this doesn't... Oh, The Woman Comes and Goes, which I think is the first song of the album. I'm listening to it and just thinking... If they had this on, you know, Voices or Private Eyes, the next couple of albums, I think they would have done it differently, and I think it would have been better um, yeah. in terms of production and the way they pull it off. I can hear all those pieces together, and they just can't quite get it to what they want to sound like, and maybe that's why they started doing their own producing in the next two albums. So Ecstatic for me is hit and miss. I got very little to say about it. I think it's their, their, their least distinguished album of this period. There's, uh, it, it's to me the sound of general creative exhaustion, and I think it's very telling that on their next record they said, you know what, we're going to produce ourselves. We're going to just do this on our own. And Voices, in fact, itself is also a bit hit and miss in my opinion. Um, I don't even like the big hit single from this, which is Wait For Me. That's the one that will end up on the greatest hits. It's probably the only one that you've heard if you're you know, sort of a casual fan. Uh, and I think it's the best song on the album, which is uh, not a good thing to say about Ecstatic. So I just don't <laughs> think, I think this is one of the very few ones where there aren't too many interesting things going on on the rest of the album tracks now robert what do you well, think? I'm, yeah i'm gonna make a pitch for the importance of ecstatic um I, I i agree with the overall substance of what you're saying it is definitely a hit or miss album um but the things i like about it are some of my favorite things that they've ever done so uh wait for me is is one of my absolute favorite tracks now interestingly and and maybe similar to sarah sarah smiled uh, this this is probably not the definitive version of it. It's it's pretty good on here, uh, but it's sort of middle of the road. Um, it's got this interesting sort of TikTok thing in the rhythm, which is cool. But uh, I think the definitive wait for me is just Daryl sitting at the piano and singing it, which he has done on occasion. Now, two things I wanted to, to uh, highlight on this album. Actually, one only one is on the album, and then one is an outtake, so I don't know if that really counts. But um, 
Running from Paradise is this song on the second side. And I'm not too hot on the lyric, but musically that song is just amazing. It's just, I, I don't, how do I even begin to describe it? I mean, it's just this incredible funk bass line. It's this um, kind of new wave keyboard. Um, it, it, just the entire groove of the song and how it switches between the different parts is just absolutely incredible. It's one of my favorites. And then um, a song called Time's Up, which was left off of the album. Um, maybe my current favorite Hollow Notes song. It's just everything I love about them. It's just a locked down, perfect pop song with the chorus to die for. I mean, the chorus just circles back around. I um, mean, if you can put a clip of that chorus on, I mean, this, I, I just absolutely <laughs> love the song. So. To me, I'm glad that they made the album just because it generated those things. But overall, as an album, I, I, I do agree with what you guys are saying. And I think that when you see them go to Voices in 1980, this is the self-produced one. And this is the moment where Hollow Notes, you know, have they've scored one big hit single, number one, with uh, Rich Girl. They scored a couple other, you know, top ten with, you know, She's Gone, with Sarah Smile. But now with Voices, they become superstars. And it's really interesting because this is the one where they said, okay, we're going to do it on our own. We're going to take complete charge. Nobody's going to tell us how to produce our music. We're going to just do a lot. Of, and a lot of it ends up sounding very much like demos, which is a pretty interesting thing. And it has a very stripped down new wave sound to it as well. Mm -hmm. But for an album that has so many hit singles, I mean, literally 50% of this album is famous. I think it's actually um, – a very flawed album because the other 50% of the sound that isn't famous is pretty dodgy. And it's it, particularly in a way that it's follow-up is not. Um, but I mean, what am I going to say? Am I going to be the guy who tries to tell you that kiss on my list or you make my dreams or every time you go away are bad songs or how does it feel to be back is not a good song. No, these are all magnificent songs and everybody's going to want to talk about these things, I suspect. But I just want to actually point out to people who have lived their entire lives listening to kiss on my list. This is a number one song. It's incredibly famous, but I want you to please appreciate how well-written a song it is. This is a song that is not only, you know, an earworm melodically, but is so perfectly structured and takes chances and takes you on to places you don't expect normal pop songs to go. You have your verse, then you expect it to go into the chorus, but instead of going to the chorus, it goes into that pre-chorus. Uh, and you insist on knowing my bliss, I'll tell you this. And then you think, okay, now it's time for the chorus. Nope. Nope, we're going to tease you a little bit more with the <laughs> because your kiss, your kiss is on my list. And then finally it unfolds into the chorus. And at that point, it's delayed your gratification just long enough that when it goes, you know, because your kiss is on my list, it feels like the sun coming out from behind the clouds. You knew it was there, but now suddenly it's emerged really well structured, so tight, not a second wasted on it. guys can tackle the rest of these songs please be my guest i think half of this album is 
pure genius, the best that Hall & Oates got in terms of their pop stylings. But the other half, like, do I really need to hear voices in my head ever again? I don't think I do. Um, the way you describe Kiss on my list is the way I would describe um, You Make My Dreams from this album. It's a song I simply cannot turn away from when you hear those first five seconds or so. It's warm and familiar like a winter jacket you put back on after a, the fall season. Uh, uh, this insistent beat uh, that kind of has uh, this echo of maybe like even Devo to it, the beat that goes to You Make My Dreams, uh, to Sarah Allen co-write once again. And I mentioned here, because it's apparent in a few places and You Make My Dreams, you know, Daryl Hall has these I don't know, vocal tics or vocal ad-libs uh, in some of the lyrics, like a lot of good Philly soul, Motown, and uh, makes his vocals even more special, I think. You Make My Dreams is really, really a perfect kind of pop song. Also from Voices, you know, the leadoff track, How Does It Feel to Be Back? Every time we do an episode, there's a track or two that forces me to come back and listen to again. It gets stuck in my head. I got to come back. For Hall & Oates, that's the track for me for whatever reason. How Does It Feel to Be Back? I could not get out of my head all week long. Um, the original Every Time You Go Away is on here, which which Paul Young would then uh, cover and make a big hit out of it in the, in the middle 80s. This is a very different slow, soulful, stacks kind of version, the Hall & Oates version of this, the, you know, the kind of the build-up and release of a song with Every Time You Go Away. Um, so I, I guess I would, I would say that I am closer to Jeff than I would be to saying that it's a, it's a five-star kind of production. I think there are some, some downbeats on voices that, that pick up on the next album, Private Eyes, but, uh, man, those hits, those earworms are, are so good. I love what Jeff said about Kiss on My List. I mean, that you articulated everything I've ever felt about that song. It's just absolutely a masterpiece. And I think that um, we cannot overstate the importance of the Allen sisters as collaborators. Yeah. Um, Kiss on My List was actually co-written with um, uh, Sarah's younger sister. I don't know if it's Jana or Jana. Um, but uh, I've always I'll pronounced just, it Jana, but I don't know if I'm right. I'll just go with Jana, um, who um, sadly passed away very young from leukemia. But uh, she wrote, from 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 my understanding, I mean, I think the the song originated with her. She came up with uh, some of the initial uh, piano parts. And what's great is that the version on the album is actually the demo that she and Daryl did with with some overdubbing done so that's the reason why it has kind of that very primitive uh almost casio sounding right. drum beat to yes. it um and and i mean that just adds to it it's just uh it's fantastic now with voices um uh, i would also agree that there's some clunkers um i'm i'm not too hot on on africa which is later on in the album but <laughs> Um, I'm kind of a fan of the weird little valley on side A. Um, you know, after you have How Does It Feel to Be Back, there's this there's this run of 
just obscurities, um, which is weird because it's such a monster album, but, but, you know, songs that no one talks about that I really like. They're really, um, you know, when I was re-listening to it, I, I, I had forgotten what a guitar driven album this is. Yeah, and yeah, it uh, is. there's this just crunchy kind of new wave thing going through side A that I really enjoy. So it's fun for that reason. United State just takes this one big dumb chord basically and rides it to the finish, but it's a pretty mm-hmm. good song. Yeah. So from Voices, massive hit. And actually, you know, the number one song, Kiss on My List, did not was not the first single and it, it did not top the charts until they were, I think, about halfway through recording the follow up, Private Eyes. So they went into it knowing what they were doing and trying to capitalize on voices, but not having that you know massive pressure of we got to follow up this number one song. So uh, mm-hmm. Private Eyes is, uh, again, just as good as, as voices, if not a tick or two better, I think. Uh, Private Eyes kind of apes the, the rhythm to kiss on my list in, in a minor key. And I'm sorry, if you don't clap your hands along the chorus of Private Eyes, then I, I don't think you're cool because I do it. <laughs> I do it in the car. I do it everywhere. I am always hand clapping to the chorus of Private Eyes no matter where I am. I'm um, actually playing the keyboard on Private Eyes <laughs> to, in my car, which is very dangerous and has caused many near misses in the car in terms of accidents. <laughs> Don't try to play the keyboards to Private Eyes when you're driving people. It's a bad idea. By the way, I, I do want to say, you know, you know just as Robert talk, talked about the importance of Sarah Allen and Jana Allen um, to this this pit-making period of Hall & Oates, Private Eyes is a perfect example. In fact, that's almost more their song than it is Daryl's song. Right. He said it, he's, he's very open about this. He's like, that's really theirs? And all I did is like mess around with the chords and then, you know, I, I tweaked the lyrics here and there, to, you know, to make it kind of like, you know, a good fit for what we were doing. But they're the ones who came up with that and he's the one who turned it into a mega hit and Private Eyes is, you know, let's be honest, this is one of the greatest songs Hollow Notes ever did. Yeah, absolutely. And through this album, Private Eyes, we don't talk a lot about the other people in the band. G.E. Smith had been in the band for a couple of albums at this point. Uh, the drummer, Mickey Curry, there's this thick snare drum sound in Private Eyes and all over the album, Private Eyes, uh, later on a track called Your Imagination. Um, Daryl Hall just kind of rides the groove that Mickey Curry provides. He'd go on to play for a long, long time in Brian Adams' band, actually. I think he's still in it. But um, but that sound is all over the album. Looking for a good sign. I think this is the second track. It's just a straight Temptations tribute. Very good song. I know there are some people that don't dig uh, Mano a Mano, which is a uh, John Oates song, but you know what? It's goofy, and I love it. They're um, fools. It's a great song. Yeah. Uh, Head Above Water is a is a pretty hard uh, Daryl Hall rocker. And, you know, I didn't mention this, Jeff, but uh, Did It In A Minute um, is just a fantastic song. Um, oh, yeah. That's that my I, second favorite Hall Oates song. Ever. I'm not sure it even made top ten. I mean, they had so many hits around this time, but uh, Did It In A Minute, I don't even know if it made top ten, but a fantastic track off, off Private Eyes. This... I think is even better uh, than voices. I would completely agree with you. And I, I would say that, you know, not to give away, tip my hand, but if I was going to mean my second key album, this is it uh, because it has all of the sort of the pop virtues and the conciseness and the nice kind of new wave, you know, 
taut, whip-smart sharpness of voices, but it doesn't have any of the fat. I don't really think there are that many down moments on this album. The first half of this album, I think inevitably, is the one that people are going to treat as the better one because it has all the famous songs. It has Private Eyes, is looking for a good sign, which is a really great song. It's not a famous one, but it's, it's, it's head and shoulders above, you know, you know, a hundred other Temptations tributes that have been out there. Uh, and then it has Mano a Mano. It has Did It in a Minute, which I have told you guys already. I tweeted about it several times before <laughs> the show started. I think this is one of the most underrated songs in their career. As underrated as anything that was ever released as a single and had success could conceivably be. That chorus, the pre-chorus, again, it's not just you have the verse, but then you go to this pre-chorus where right. you have you know, Hall singing one thing and Oates singing another thing, and then boom, they come together in the harmonies for you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it in a minute. And it's just a beautiful pop moment. And of course, what none of us had mentioned is uh, the best song on the side, which is uh, Billie Jean. I mean, it's I Can't Go For That. No can't do. Um, everybody knows I Can't Go For That. It's one of Hall Oates' most famous songs, legendarily one of the very few songs to ever be number one on both the R&B charts, which is you know generally sort of seen as you know the, you know, the black, the African-American soul charts, and a number one hit single on the pop charts at the same time. And uh, Michael Jackson famously came up to Daryl Hall when they were recording the We Are the World sessions in 1985, and he said, yeah, you know what? I, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't even realize I was doing it, but I totally stole that bass line from you <laughs> for Billie Jean, which they are. They're just direct cop. If you've ever you, everybody knows both songs and everybody knows yeah that's the same baseline and Hall was really gracious about it he's like listen I've done the same thing myself it just happens in music it's not a big deal but that first half of Private Eyes is flawless and then the second half I think is almost it's less famous but it's just as good Head Above Water Your Imagination Tell Me What You Want there's a lot of these Sarah Allen uh, you know, co-compositions that are, are really underrated um, that again they reward the person who bothers to take the time to dive deep into the discography of this band beyond the singles because Private Eyes is a fantastic record. Yeah, I, th I think it's a just a stone-cold masterpiece. Um, and, and this is the sound of, of a band where you know they've hacked this pop songwriting thing. Like <laughs> they, they have this down, and now they're just going to let it fly. And, um, you know, I, I know with these podcasts – uh, we need to pick, you know, five top tracks, and this this album alone makes that very difficult <laughs> because I could just pick five tracks from this album. Um, Once you go for it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so so and two, I would add uh, uh, lesser known songs that I think are just incredible are uh, "Unguarded Minute," I, I think, and the chorus of that is just great, and then "Your Imagination," one of my favorites. Um, so I, I love everything about this album. Um, which to me, a question is what happened next? Because I, I think H2O, which is a follow-up to Private Eyes, is a pretty big step down 
in quality from from private eyes um really yes um more serious more somber tone things sound here's what i say things sound a bit more mechanical to me uh as opposed to a little loose and fun um i, I think h2o is a little more mechanical sounding it's their biggest well, you're not selling... a fan of italian girls scott <laughs> <laughs> Too much. Uh, it's their biggest selling studio album so people liked it and i'm not saying obviously it wasn't a, a bad choice for their commercial fortunes but um you know uh Family Man on here, the, the, uh, about a minute left in Family Man, um, there's this uh, Jaws-themed guitar line that if you listen, <laughs> you, you pick up, and it's like, da-da, 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 da-da. the best part of that song of uh, uh, Family Man but there's a lot of stuff on here I don't think works very well at all I think Art of Heartbreak is not a good song um, Crime Pays has this very minimalist kind of groove to it but I don't think it pays well no pun intended pays off in the end um, <laughs> Man Eater is the is another huge uh, track off of this works pretty well another Sarah Allen co-write on this One on One probably is the best song on the album One on One is really is a spooky pretty keyboard uh, and great lyrics about uh, you know earned intimacy um, but some of this like open all night about an unfaithful partner and she was open all night while I was away it's kind of a little gross Daryl Hall I don't need to hear yeah, that um, yeah I'll agree with you on that one so I, I you know I don't I actually we haven't talked about H2O via our email so I don't know where you guys stand but I think H2O is a pretty big fall from the creative heights of private eyes I think H2O is, is about on par with voices, and it's not as good as Private Eyes. But I think, first of all, I think you severely underrate Maneater by saying it's just an okay song. Maneater is, is a Stone Cold classic. It is one of the songs that literally defines what the 80s means to people when they think about, well, what is 80s music? And it defines it in the best possible way, not in the way that's embarrassing. Maneaters and Max is just a magnificent pop song. And ironically enough, I think it wasn't even really written about a woman. I think the story that they tell is that it was actually really just about like, you know, New York City ambition mm -hmm. and the record business and all that. And then they put it into this sort of like frame of being about like a, a you know, a tough chick will eat you alive because hey, that sells better. Um, but I also think Delayed Reaction is a really underrated song. Um, it's one of the ones that I, I had. This is one of the few vinyl LPs I made it a point to buy as a kid back when we, I still we had a CD player and we had a record player. So I had a copy <laughs> of H2O on vinyl. I must have been like five years old. Um, Family Man is great. It's not a Hall & Oates song technically because it's written by Mike Oldfield. Yes, right. he of Tubular Bells of all things <laughs> wrote Family Man. Um, which is a really great song. One on one is good too. I say half of this album is is is, is legit excellent, but again, it still has the same problem that Voices has. Whereas the other half, I think, is a bit of a downer. And I think you know you 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 noted Open All Night as one that just leaves a sour taste in your mouth in particular. Italian girls, by the way, I like Italian girls. I don't know. I mean, why don't you? Why what is it about that song that does not sit well with you, Scott? Well, Come on. I did not single. Stupid. I did not single that one out as being one of my. My, uh, my my less favorites from the album. I <laughs> just think it doesn't play to to being a, an extremely strong track. 
So guys, I am going to go to bat for this album. I have been I have been preparing for this moment maybe my <laughs> entire life. Um, you know, I think that this is a great album. It's uh, it's not quite at the dizzying heights of uh, Private Eyes, but I put it above Voices. Um, and and I think so. I, I appreciate what Scott is saying about the mechanical quality. I think. Um, I think that's not true of this album, but that comes in very quickly after this. Um, I think that, I mean, it's definitely a harder production and it's, you're, you're getting a bit more of those eighties production techniques coming in. Mm-hmm. It's a bigger sound. And in, 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 to my tastes, um, they thread the needle correctly on this one. Um, but, uh, it, this is a dark record and, um, you know, open all night. I understand the yuck factor in that. Um, but it's interesting. There's some interesting stuff that happens in that song. Um, and, and Jeff, I thought this was, it was very interesting to listen to this pretty shortly after a re-listen to sacred songs, because there's a part at the end of the song where it goes into this kind of ambient keyboard thing. It seems like he's trying to do frippertronics on a keyboard. <laughs> yes. And so there's this sort of outro on that song and, and, and I'm thinking, boy, I would love to just have Robert Fripp step in and, and kind of do his thing over the top of this because this sounds like something from Sacred Songs. By the way, um, can we give credit to Maneater as a song for having one of the longest buildups to the, the actual <laughs> song itself in any top pop single? I, I feel like that song takes like what, like a minute or so, so to get to get to where you know she only comes out at night. You have that long sax intro, just goes on and on and then it repeats during the uh the uh the, the uh the solo bold bold to try that kind of a move in, in radio where the point is you know don't bore us get to the chorus um <laughs> i really love the fact that they take a chance with that and they pull it off so admirably and and here is where we have to sing the praises of mr t-bone walk the bass player mm. um this album i think is his finest hour and uh, you know he 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 came up with that bass line to Maneater, and his bass is just and, and also the bass work and one on one is just absolutely amazing. So the album is mining a lot of dark territory, and so that's where that's where I have an issue with Italian Girls because you have Family Man, which which as Jeff noted is not a Hall Notes composition, but I would argue that they own this song in the same way that Jimi Hendrix owned all along the watchtower after he did it. I mean, they, they, Daryl Hall is so invested in the song and, and it's, it's mining the same concerns as Maneater and as open all night and all that kind of other stuff. He had, he had some, some serious relationship troubles on his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems. And, uh, to go from that, you know, uh, family man, which just builds and builds first, you have, you have this kind of sparse beat and then T-Bone kind of steps it up with the bass and then the guitar mirrors the bass. And that's that Jaws thing. I think Scott was talking about right at the end. Yeah. And then to go from that to something that's just so silly, like, like Italian girls, it's just such a buzzkill. Um, some other stuff. So there's, there's a not successful Oates track on here called at tension. Um, I think is this on, cause it's on the, uh, it's on the digital. I mean, it's definitely on the album. It's on yeah. my copy of the album. Yep. Okay. Um, and I don't like his voice on it, but with, with you know, I'm, I'm definitely an advocate for Oates, and I think um, uh, an exercise you should try sometime, if you if you have an Oates song that you don't like, 
try to imagine the same song with with Daryl Hall singing lead on it. And and a lot of times you suddenly realize, hey, this is actually a pretty good song. <laughs> and it's not to say that Oates is is a bad singer. In fact, I think he's wonderful on on a lot of the early material. Um, but he's not as um, versatile a singer, a singer. And so on some of this later material, it seems to be a little bit outside of his wheelhouse um, as a vocalist. Um, so I, I think attention is an interesting failure, but um, I, I like the music to that. And I think Go Solo is my favorite Daryl Hall vocal performance. I mean, it's just such an edge to his vocals in that song. All of those factors combined to make H2O one of my favorite Hall Notes records. Before we move on to the next album, I just want to briefly touch on they released the greatest hits right after this. Yes. Sort of summarizing all this stuff. Really one of these mega selling CDs that everybody had a copy of, including me. This is how I first got into Hall Notes because my dad bought a copy of Rock and Soul Part One. Still waiting for um, Part Two, though, uh, by the way. Yeah, yeah, still waiting for part two. You know, part two could just be assembled out of the stuff they left off of part one. Um, the reason I bring it up is that it had two new songs on it, one of which I don't much care for called Adult Education, mm -hmm. uh, but another one that was written on the H2O tour, which is oh, another one of these these wonderful Hollow Notes songs that I think is one of my favorite of their singles. Um, it's called Say It Isn't So. Uh, and uh, it's a Daryl Hall number, and it's another one of those ones where if I say the name, say it isn't so, and you think, well, I've never heard of that. And then we play the clip of it right afterwards. You'd be like, I know that song. Oh, that's a great song. It's a wonderful song. And uh, it's just one of those that falls between the cracks because it never belonged to any album. Mm -hmm. But I think it's the second to last truly great number. Political Beats, presentation of National Review. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Robert Dean Lurie with us. RobertDeanLurie.com is where to find out more about his work. Talking about Daryl Hall and John Oates. And we come to the last really, really commercially successful album, Big Bam Boom, 1984. Very different record in terms of production. Bigger, noisier. Uh, Bob Clearmountain was brought in. Uh, early in his career, Clear Mountain has mixed and produced a ton of huge acts and songs through the years. Uh, I was reading a book, Jacob Schlichter, who was the drummer from the band Semi-Sonic, Closing Time, if you recall that tong uh, song, and, and Bob Clear Mountain mixed Closing Time for the band, and uh, they referred to the Clear Mountain pause, which if you know Closing Time, there's this point in the song where everything stops. And then, I know who I want to take me home, right? So Bob Clearmountain, very famous for the Clearmountain pause. It's in this album on uh, the big single, Out of Touch, just before the first verse, just before the second verse, there's a Clearmountain pause. Uh, and that is Out of Touch, which I think might be, it's on my list of five, spoil that. I don't know if it's my favorite thing they've done, but it's right there if it's not. The, uh, the transition from Dance on Your Knees, about a minute and a half of, 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 of uh, produced sound into Out of Touch is fantastic. Out of Touch, for me, 
a perfectly assembled song. And I know I said too much on H2O was mechanical, but this is just a great, uh, it's put together perfectly. The huge keyboard hook, the vocals from Daryl Hall are amazing. And I didn't realize how good it was until I started using it for bed music for my radio show, because there's a big lead in uh, to the lyrics on Out of Touch. And so I used it on the show and I'd listen to it, you know, once a week, twice a week and think, man, that's a great groove. And go back and listen to it a bit more. That is a fantastic song, Out of Touch. the album you can hear that change in production styles all over the place it helps in some places i think it helps on like bank of bank on your love the production helps that song a bit uh some other ones not as much there's a tune called going through the motions which listening to it i'm not sure why it wasn't a single it wasn't i think could have done uh could have done pretty well but uh man for me everything else is kind of beside the point outside of out of touch which is just a a perfect hall and oats tune well, you, you stole basically what I was going to say. Uh, I'm going to tip my hand. Out of Touch is also on my top five. It is the last, to my mind, truly epical, great Hollow Notes single ever released. I like a couple other later songs too, but nothing compares to this. This is the one that my dad adored. We played the tape of it in the car every time we would go out for a drive when I was growing up and I was six, seven, eight years old. So this one actually occupies a very special emotional place to me. It's like, you know, memories of a happy childhood are all <laughs> folded in with Daryl Hall and John Oates singing, you're out of touch, you're out of time, but I'm out of my head when you're not around. My dad and I would debate what the actual lyrics and the verses <laughs> were. We weren't quite sure. So I love this song. The only thing I've always been a little bit perplexed by is the mix, it, the, the, the single version always seems to carry on that little bit of dance on your knees that comes in yes. and out of it. Yes. So it has it's a very funky opening. I always wondered why you, there's no clean version of it that just has the out-of-touch track on it. But yeah, that's great. Uh, the other big single from this album was Method of Modern Love, and I've never been as big a fan of that. I think you're right about going through the motions. That would be my nominee for the second best song on the record. But overall, I think there is a decline here, and I do think that the production style takes a toll. This is clearly the most 80s-sounding record they ever did even though it's the fourth one that they've done from that era. Say It Isn't So from The Greatest Hits it sounds like an 80s song, but it doesn't suffer because of its 80s touches. In fact, right. those, I think, buoy it up. Here, you outside of Out of Touch, I think you really see some of the trends of the, of the era uh, dragging down what otherwise are uh, songs that I think if they had been done, say, around the bigger than the both of us or Beauty on a Backstreet era would have been a lot more interesting than they end up sounding here. Yeah, this album, um, I was thinking about this um, and, and, and thinking in the context of groups that have been around for a really long time. And so I think of bands like Genesis and I think of bands like Pink Floyd where the, there's such a long run that the, usually with fans, there's a point where you get off the train. <laughs> like most people are not with a band all the way through to the end. Yeah. And and this is definitely like the disembarking point for me. Um 
it, but but it's a it's a great kind of parting shot and um we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later because definitely other fans will will um sing the praises of of, of some of the later albums because there's there's a few more but um uh, I agree with what you guys said about Out of Touch. That is uh, phenomenal. Um, and uh, some other really good songs on here. Um, I actually really like um, Some Things Are Better Left Unsaid. Um, I think that's it's got a really interesting, odd chorus to it. Um, and I like the production on that song. <laughs> Possession Obsession actually is, is uh, I think, one of Oates' best vocals. I really like hmm. I like the whole sort of um, floating kind of groove to that song. Um, other stuff, not as successful. I'm not a big <laughs> fan of uh, All-American Girl. Um, and and there's, there's something that creeps into this album along with the, along with the just noisy, uh, dated production. Um, and that's you know, Daryl Hall's ad-libbing up to this point um, on all of his, uh, practically every song that they ever cut, you know, he does, he does a lot of ad-libbing usually towards the, the end of a song. Mm-hmm. And, and I always bought it. It always worked for me. It always seemed very organic and, uh, and never excessive. Um, and then on this album, you start, you start, he starts doing a lot of, yeah, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and, and it's, I think more show off factor uh, coming in here and a little bit uh, more robotic too. It, it, it's, it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. packaged sounding. I agree. Yeah. I, you know, the songwriting, there's, there's still I mean, some of their best songs are on this album, but you know, this, this to me is the end. And, and, and the thing is though, I mean, what a run up to this point. I mean, what, if, if this is the catalog, you know, for me, um, there, you know, we've, we've been talking for, so long here there's stuff that i love on every single album up to this point and that is unparalleled if, if i think of other discographies uh so you know there's no shame in the fact it, well it's not a fact an opinion mm-hmm. that you know this is kind of where things are spent yeah um because wow after I mean, go ahead Jeff. sorry scott you were gonna say i no? was gonna slide and, and, and kind of get to the uh uh, the uh, commercial decline. Um, you know, they took a four-year break after Big Bam Boom. Didn't come out with another album until '88, which was Ooh Yeah. Uh, and I think actually that sounds even more '80s uh, production-wise yeah. than Big Bam Boom does. Um, I, I, you know, I, I've heard bits and pieces of these last albums. The one thing I want to mention from Change of Season, which was uh, 1990, the the single was so close, and it was produced by John Bon Jovi, actually. And I guess they didn't really like the finished product, though it was the single, because they included a, a, another version on the album, which was, uh, they call it Unplugged, a lot of acoustic. That version of So Close is pretty fantastic. Um, mm. And the single was a little overproduced, and it sounds, you know, you know, you know, Blaze of Glory sounds so huge. That's the kind of production that John Bon Jovi gave to, to So Close, the single. It just is massive. Uh, but the intimacy of the acoustic version of So Close is very, very good. 
Um, and I must admit, I haven't heard everything from Ooh Yeah and Change of Season and Marigold Sun. Is that the next? Marigold Sky. Marigold Sky. Uh, so I'm not sure anyone's going to defend, anyone on this show is going to defend those three albums, but I wanted to mention at least that So Close uh, version. I forced myself to listen to all three, uh, but only recently, as I de- as we decided we were doing this show, and I don't. I, I it's I, it's clear to me that you know they're they're spent. That you know at this point that that the trends have passed them by. So close is the best song on all three of those albums, mm. as you mentioned. I actually like the single version. I hate Bon Jovi with a passion, but again, <laughs> this is another one of those songs that I remember from like my VH1 watching days in 1990. So I can have fond memories of that. I think the un. Plug version is superior though. Yeah, man loves a woman, but he can't understand what she said when she stares at the ring on her hand. Then she sits in some club where the long shadows fall. Drop a coin in the jukebox, not the phone on the But yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's not a lot to say about the last few albums in the Hall of discography, in my opinion. I'm willing to be proven wrong if Robert has something to tell me otherwise. Well, two things I want to say about about this kind of uh, the, the come down here of these these last three. Um, I have a friend whose opinion I I value quite highly, and he for years has insisted. Well, he he is he has told me over and over again that Ooh Yeah is his favorite Hollow Notes album, and he is intimately familiar with every single album from the beginning. Hmm. Um, so you know, I, I gave it a listen with that in mind, and, <laughs> uh, and actually, um, I, I, it's not bad. It's not bad. Ooh, Ooh Yeah is uh, pretty good singing from, uh, from Daryl, and, and uh, the hooks are still in place. Um, it, for the reason there's, there's kind of two reasons that this later stuff doesn't work for me. And, um, one is, um, as my friend who, who loves this stuff, he pointed out at this point, they kind of transition into kind of what he calls more vibey material. You know, it's not, it's not this, these kind of tight locked down, pop songs that are precision engineered is kind of more of like a vibe man you know it's more of a groove and and that's kind of who daryl hall is to this day like he he uh he he's very relaxed when he performs and um and some nights are fantastic and other nights it's just it's just not connecting and and i think that was just something he had to do in his development to keep it interesting and it's just not quite my cup of tea so there's that so the other thing is um Uh, when I was at UGA, I, I took a music business class with this man who was involved in some capacity um, in some very early rock and roll production. He was involved in the production of the song Runaway by uh, Del Shannon. And one of the things that he talked about in this class was that uh, with with a song like Runaway, you know, uh, it has that – one of the things people remember – is that really eerie sort of baseball high-pitched organ in the song that does the solo? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, he said that you know when he was doing production work that they were always looking for something like that that would make that song just jump out and become unforgettable. So you had to start with an amazing song, 
and then you had to find some just weird sound you know and this is also true of um you know my other favorite band uh, the church the, the one song that anyone knows is is under the milky way which has a revert it's has a backwards bagpipe solo in the song <laughs> it's, it's kind of the same thing it's like where else are you going to hear that and you're never going to forget it you know so hollow notes up i'd say through big bam boom we're trying to always do that in their production you know you think about those songs and um you you remember the sounds of the recordings as much as the songs themselves. And, you know, it helps that the songs were pretty much flat out perfect. And then you throw these just left field production touches. Um, a lot of which we've highlighted during this discussion. And for some reason that stops cold after big bam boom. And I don't hear any of that. I don't hear any of that studio innovation happening, um, in the rest of the run. And I think everything, yeah. I'm sorry, you were saying, no, that that that's it. I mean, it just it just um, yeah. There's some decent songwriting still, but that other thing is gone. Everything you need to know about an album whose title is just "Ooh Yeah" <laughs> is that the last three songs are. You have a song called "Soul Love," then you have a song called "Real Love," and then you end with a song called "Keep On Pushing Love," which kind of tells you what you need to know about how. They were kind of running out of juice when it came to inspired themes for their songs <laughs> and maybe putting the effort in, you know. But I mean, listen, as you said, this, you know, if this, if that's the end, and obviously, you know, it is pretty much the end for Hollow Notes as a creative force. They had so much to be proud of prior to this. I mean, it's just as you say, a full decade of creative excellence uh, that uh, I hope we've made the case for everyone listening today really deserves to stand up there with a lot of the other greats of pop and rock music of the 70s and the 80s. Um, you know, there's no shame in the fact that eventually they ran out of ideas. Heck, the Rolling Stones ran out of ideas in 1981 and people still listen to their music and don't complain <laughs> about that either. <laughs> Uh, political Beats, uh, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Robert Dean Lurie, Daryl Hall, and John Oates, our topic. We come to the conclusion of our podcast where each and every week we ask uh, everyone involved to give the listeners two albums they should own from our artist and five tracks that they need to hear. We start with our guest, Robert Dean Lurie. Your uh, your choices. Scott, that's that's impossible. The, things that, the, the thing you just <laughs> asked me to do is impossible. Uh, nah. I, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. So, uh, all right. So for, let's start with, uh, you said two essential albums. Correct. Yes. All right. Um, I'm going to give you two plus a bonus. So <laughs> I'm going to do, um, private eyes and abandoned luncheonette. Um, and we, we cover that in, in, uh, great detail as to why. Uh, and then the bonus, um, which is, it's hard to even call it a bonus is beauty on a back street. Um, that's, incredible so that's that's my albums and then for tracks uh, this is really hard um, so I've got this list and I kept I kept putting stars <laughs> next to the ones that I had to be in the five and then there's more than five stars and <laughs> and then I started underlining things and um, so I'm gonna just uh, I'm not gonna read the whole list but it's, it's probably gonna be just one or two more than five so one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I think, is my favorite Hollow Notes song. Um, I, I actually didn't talk about that much when we when we were talking about H2O, but uh, I just everything just falls into place with that. It's uh, the production is beautiful. 
um, the keyboard sounds are great. The singing is, is you know, it's, he's at his best. Um, the lyrics are kind of fun and with this weird sort of basketball metaphor. And it's just, it's a quirky and great love song. Um, I think someone from, I think the singer of Death Cab for Cutie said that this song is so good it hurts. And, and I agree with him. And when you move it closer, earlier the time's up the outtake from ecstatic mm-hmm. uh, I just can't get that out of my head that song is just incredible I want to just live in that song um, wait for me um, maybe my favorite Daryl Hall lyric um, kiss on my list for the reasons that uh, Jeff mentioned and um, I don't know I might be at five at this point but <laughs> also I, I can't go for that which I didn't even talk about but um, uh, that was another one like Kiss on My List where it, I, I think what we're hearing is is the demo with extra things laid on top of it. Um, and uh, another good collaboration. I think they're both contributing to that track. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure if they, I don't know offhand if they co-wrote it, but but uh, I know that they were in the studio kind of crafting that thing together. Honorable mentions would be deep cuts like Falling, uh, 70s Scenario, When the Morning Comes, Um but the thing is, there's just so much. There's just an avalanche of pop hooks. Um, you know, I think about maybe the Bee Gees is another band that that has just this incredible barrage of hooks that you just you're just reeling from it. But I think Hall and Oates is actually maybe maybe double what the Bee Gees gave us. So <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, I will give you um, I'll give you Daryl Hall and John Oates, the Silver Album, and in Private Eyes as the two that I think you should own. And um, among songs, uh, Camellia from uh, from Daryl Hall and John Oates is an excellent one. Talk about Alley Cats from Along the Red Ledge, uh, side two, Rick Nielsen playing. That just sounds fantastic coming out of the speakers. Uh, you Make My Dreams from uh, Voices. Uh, again, I can't turn away once that song starts. Looking for a good sign. A little Temptations tribute from Private Eyes is a an excellent track. And I, I can't not tell you to go listen to Out of Touch. Heck, go listen to the, uh, I think there's like an eight and a half minute club mix that they put together uh, back in the day. It's good. It's, it's good too. <laughs> go listen to the eight and a half minute club mix of Out of Touch. That is a fantastic song. Uh, Jeff. All right. Well, I mean, you guys have covered a lot of the ground that I was going to go over, so I can be briefer. I, I, my two albums are Abandoned Luncheonette and um, Private Eyes, for all the reasons that we've discussed. I mean, you have the best of early Hollow Notes and sort of their Philly soul folk phase, and then you have the best of Hollow Notes during their massive megastar pop single new wave rock phase. Uh, in between the five great songs that I would uh, cite to, again, you know, just like Robert said, this is a band where you could conceivably make you know five different lists and they would all have you know 15 different songs on them and you wouldn't repeat it and they would all be valid because this is a group that not only has so many great hits but is never been perfectly compiled even like the boxed set which is hard to find and it's really expensive so i mean unless you're a super fan you, you probably shouldn't go out and try to hunt it down uh even that doesn't come close to getting all of their best music because they really are more than their singles and i would say that you start with she's gone from abandoned luncheonette 
which again is just one of the most majestic and perfect singles that was released in the early 1970s. Uh, my second track would be Bad Habits and Infections from Beauty on a Backstreet. Mm-hmm. The album that nobody knows by Hall and Oates, and a song that nobody knows on an album that nobody knows. People, listen, just go pull it up on YouTube and listen to all six minutes. And if you aren't floored by the just thorough creativity of what Daryl Hall brings to that in terms of the arrangement and the structuring and the melody and the harmonies and the layering of vocals, then I will eat my shoe. Um, (laughs) My third would be Kiss on My List because of all the reasons that I explained when I talked about it. Nothing more needs to be said. Uh, my fourth would be Private Eyes. Again, another great one. As I said, never try to drive your car and play the piano part to Private Eyes. Disaster will ensue. And then finally, Out of Touch is the, the last one. And the last great single of, of Hall & Oates' career. And uh, you know, if that's to be the case, then that's a pretty great way to go out. Uh, guys, this is one of the great duos in uh, pop rock history. I really hope that everybody uh, who's listened to this you know, takes the time to go out and give them a shot because they deserve it. And there we are, our Political Beats episode on Daryl Hall and John Oates, Robert Dean Lurie. Find him at robertdeanlurie.com. His book's No Certainty Attached, Steve Kilby and the Church. We Can Be Heroes, The Radical Individualism of David Bowie, and the album, the tribute album, The Dark Side of Hall and Oates, all can be linked to and found at robertdeanlurie.com. Robert, thanks so much for joining Political Beats. Thanks so much, guys. I had so much fun. And Jeff, I know uh, you were looking forward to this one, too. Hall and Oates. Good one? Absolutely. Great one. And we'll do it again next week for you guys. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Remember, subscribe to our feed, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or NationalReview.com for new episodes on Mondays. Uh, Listen, enjoy. Please leave a review as well. This has been a presentation of National Review. Jeff Blair, I'm Scott Bertram, and this has been Political Beats. Political Beats.